it's no secret that we're, we're a society that is just absolutely consumed with some kind of scandal, from politics to sports to radio hosts to watching the TV stars just explode. There's an entire breed of pseudo-journalism just even devoted to this national pastime. You go through... You, go through the grocery store lines and there is the National Enquirer and its sole goal is to show you the latest scandal. Often the scandal is just a total hoax, but something in our heart still keeps businesses like that going. Here's an example. Back in 2014, Newsweek told the story of Lisa Nowak. Anybody remember this story? Here's the story. It was a story no reputable, respectable tabloid could pass up. And here it is. It was a story of a middle-aged mother of three, a respectable professional, a highly decorated woman in the field where men dominated, who was suddenly overcome with a love-stricken feminine rage that she drove 950 miles without stopping to confront her romantic rival. 950 miles. Now that's not it. Even though she was armed with pepper spray, a BB gun, a trench coat, and a wig, it was the diapers, it was the diapers that would forever cement this 43-year-old astronaut Lisa Nowak's place in history. Not wanting to make a pit stop, Nowak used Pampers instead. And according to police reports, there were three soiled ones wrapped up, found in the backseat of her car so that she could confront her romantic rival face to face. She did not want to stop. And for the brief period of time, it, it made it onto all the late night shows. The com there were comedy sticks out about Lisa Nowak, this respectable woman who has driven 950 miles to confront a rival and who used diapers to make it the whole way. It's crazy. But somehow we're, we're drawn to this kind of stuff. Lisa Kipnick's uh, Kipnis, who is a media studies professor at Northwestern University and a self-admitted scandal fiend, wrote this. I confess, I love these stories. She says, it, it, in her book, How to Become a Scandal, she, she kind of tries to aim to resolve just why we can't get enough of this scandalous kind of stuff. She said, these people are these are people who are just self-destructing on a public stage. And we all kind of love to sit back and go, oh, what's going to happen? And she later goes on to write, I was trying to understand what drove them, but also why I couldn't look away. The most compelling scandals, she said, are those when some secret is revealed best through some inadvertent means. Today, scandal doesn't just make the news, it is the news. It, it, it's mingled with entertainment, and it's made permanent on the web, and virtually spread to every corner of the world, and there's something in us that loves it. 
And if you're saying, no, that's really not true, hmm, I wonder if you're being truthful. We all love a good old scandal until it hits home. Over the past couple weeks, we've been looking at the scandalous family tree of Jesus Christ. And Matthew, the author of this genealogy that we just read, he doesn't find himself wanting to sanitize this genealogy at all. No, he goes right out there. He lists some of the more scandalous members of of Jesus' family tree. And we find ourselves somehow, if we look carefully, we find ourselves drawn into this story. And we're going to see that even in this scandalous story, that there's encouraging hope that no family, no person is too far gone for God to redeem. So last week, or past couple of weeks, we've looked at two of these individuals. We've already looked at Ju- uh, Tamar. She is the daughter-in-law of Judah, and she was the one who prostituted herself out to her father-in-law. And in that story, we saw that God brings salvation for sinners. Sinners of all stripes, of all colors, of all types. Last week, we looked at Rahab, a prostitute, a woman of the night from Jericho, who was not only an outsider, that she was a Gentile, but she was a prostitute by trade. A prostitute by trade who ultimately professed her faith in the God of Israel. We heard about what happened when you crossed through the Red Sea. We heard what you did to those kings out there. I heard about this. And she professed her faith. And we saw that God brings salvation to those who profess their faith in God. Today we're going to look at Ruth, the Moabite. And in this story, we are going to see that salvation that Christ brings is for Gentiles, condemned by the law, but redeemed by grace. So we need a little bit of backstory about Ruth. And like I mentioned earlier, this was a, we, we went through six weeks through the book of Ruth before. And so some of you are going, all right, are you going to tell the whole story? No, but I know as a 47-year-old man and, uh, that, and a former teacher that people quickly forget. They forget some of the details. So I'm going to, if you allow me, I'm going to give you kind of the Cliff Notes version of the book of Ruth. It all started out with a man and his wife who was experienced terrible famine in the land of Israel. His name was, does anybody know? Huh? Elimelech. Elimelech and his wife Naomi. And they they went to the forbidden land of Moab. The forbidden land. And it was there that they also had two sons. Those two sons quickly experienced the death of their father. And Shortly after that, those two sons married two women, Orpah and Ruth. After about ten years, the two sons died, leaving Naomi and the daughter-in-laws to fend for themselves as widows. Naomi heard that the famine was over in Judah, and so now Judea, and so now it's time to go back to the homeland. Maybe there's going to be hope for us back in Bethlehem. So she urged her daughter-in-laws. Stay here. Listen, I am an old woman. I'm not going to have any more sons. Don't wait for me to give you another, another, any kind of hope. Stay here. Put down your roots. 
find another husband, get a great job, worship your gods here, but don't come back with me. Orpah, after some reluctance, decided to stay, but it was Ruth was determined to stay with Naomi. Again, Naomi just urged Ruth, stay here. There, I, I have nothing to offer you. There's no hope for you coming with me. But it seems like Naomi had been faithful to God while living there amongst the pagan Moabites. And her example of faithfulness had a direct impact on this woman, Ruth. Ruth chose to be kind and to be loyal to her mother-in-law and to commit her to God. The one true, commit herself to the one true God. So what did Ruth do? One of the most fam- famous b- verses in the whole book of Ruth. She replied to Naomi with this, this, these lines. Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and so much more if anything but death parts me from you. Those are, those are some hard words. So, so the two women arrived in, in Bethlehem just in time for the spring harvest and Ruth was industrious. She immediately went to the fields trying to support herself and her mother-in-law. While working in the fields, she was noticed by Boaz, a wealthy landowner who happened to be related to the family of Naomi's husband, Boaz was really wowed by her industrious work and her devotedness to her mother-in-law. And he introduced himself and he said this, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. Everything. And how you left your father and your mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. The relationship developed even further. And God used Boaz to fulfill the uh, the blessings of a redeemer, the kinsman redeemer, which serves as a type of work like we see in the Messiah, purchasing, paying a price, for another person. And after satisfying some of the technicalities of this ancient law, Boaz and Ruth got married. And they had a child. So to our North American ears, there is some, this is a really nice love story. It's a story between a man and a woman who had really been found finding themselves on some really tough luck in the midst of famine and losing everything, bankruptcy, you name it. They've lost it all. They found love. Loneliness was solved. A child was born. And they lived happily ever after. But we can't miss out on the fact that she was from Moab. She was a Moabite. Sounds like uh, one of those ancient critters, also known as a 
trilobite, but it has no relationship whatsoever. There's something scandalous that you need to know about Moab. Ruth's ancestry had its origin in a man named Lot. If you know anything about Lot, Lot had an, an incestuous relationship with his oldest daughter, which started the whole family line. On top of that, Ruth's people were polytheistic pagans. They believed in multiple different gods, occasionally even offering up human sacrifices to one of their gods. On top of that, the relationship between Moab and Israel has never been good. Never. It was Balak, Balak, the king of Moab, who hired out a man by the name of Balaam to bring, call down a curse from God on the people of Israel. That's not good relationship. You're doing what? And on top of that, after that, the women of Moab seduced the Israelite men to indulge in sexual immorality, to worship their gods, and therefore causing God's anger to just burn down on them. Burn down on them so much that 24,000 people died in a plague attributed to that. You thought 9-11 was traumatic. 24,000 people dead. So it's no surprise that as they entered into the promised land, the people of Israel were commanded to never make a treaty of friendship at all with Moab. So the question has got to be asked, how did Ruth find herself into this genealogy of Jesus Christ? How did this forbidden woman find her name in the family tree of Jesus? Friends, it's only by grace that this happens. When when Naomi lost it all, she decided it was time to move back. She told Ruth to find another man, find another hope, make your way. And yet, what does Ruth do? She clung. She clung to Naomi. And the word here used for clung to is a word used in Genesis chapter 2 to describe what happens when a man and woman are united in marriage. They cleave together. They are totally identified with each other. And that's what Ruth's words are, so, why they're so famous here. And what they reveal from that moment, her whole identity was bound up in the identity of Ruth and all that Ruth wa- or all that Naomi was. She was an Israelite who worshipped the one and only true God. So conversion... Changing your destiny is all about identifying with God and God's people. So we see it here in Ruth chapter 1. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, where you live, so I will live. Your people, my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I'm going to die too. Where you're buried, I'm going to be buried. So the heart of Ruth's identification with Naomi was her total identification with Naomi's God and Naomi's people. But is this even possible? Should it even be possible? Can an outsider, someone who doesn't fit into our neat, clean little box, become part of God's people? 
should have happened in Israel. Even in Deuteronomy chapter 23. No Ammonite, no Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the tenth generation, none may enter the assembly of the Lord forever. Forever. That is a hardcore exclusion. So how could Ruth enter into the congregation of the Lord? This is how. By trusting God's grace and throwing herself completely on His mercy. Law excludes us from God's family. But grace includes us if we put our faith in Christ. Ruth's uh, conversion is just further evidence of the sovereign grace of God for the only way that sinners can be saved, only way that you can be saved, only way your neighbors can be saved, only way your co-workers can be saved, only way this world can be saved is by grace. So Ruth renounced everything of what it meant to be a Moabite. And she became all that it meant to be a Jew, a follower of the one true God. The very fact that one of the books of the Old Testament is named after a Moabite shouts out that God is up to something. It shouts out something about God's grace. He came for outsiders. He not only came for Israel, but for the Gentiles like you and me who are condemned under the law. So for us to be, say, I am a Christian, to be a Christian means that we are united with Jesus Christ, right? By faith, we cling to Him. And that's easy for us as evangelicals, as Christians, as believers in Christ to say, yeah, I identify with Christ. He is mine, I am His. We, We have this union with Christ. It means that His Father is my Father. But it also means that His people are my people. Conversion automatically unites us to God's people. Think about that. Think about that in this this world and the people even here, some of you might go, oh, this, he's a little bristly, or she's a little bristly, or I don't like her personality, or his personality, or they, you know what he said, or she said, somehow through conversion, you are united to that person. So let me kind of rephrase this all. If we identify with God, and he becomes our father, and we become His children, you know, the ones who should be excluded, the ones who are messy, the ones who don't quite fit into your box or my box, and we're, but somehow we are brought into His family to be His chosen bride, we see that God is throwing open the doors of grace. He's throwing them open wide to whoever would receive this gospel and believe that the Lord Jesus Christ is truly who he says he is. Listen to Romans chapter 5. For if while we were sinners, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we should also rejoice in, in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received reconciliation. 
One, two, three, four, five, six times in those two verses is the pronoun we. It's not just you as a, a singular person. Yeah, you've been reconciled. No, we. we. We together, we become a family, a mismatched, messed up group of people that should not be fitting together. But somehow, through the work of Jesus Christ, we become family. With all your dysfunction and my dysfunction, my quirks and your quirks, we all become part of this family. So what does this mean for us? That, what this means for us is that we are a wildly diverse group of people. So no matter, and think about this, really, try to get outside of the box. We are, no matter what your ethnicity is, no matter what your gender is, dare I say, even where you find your sexual identity, what you may have done to others, hear me on this. You don't have enough past. You don't have enough baggage. You don't have enough dysfunction that God can't redeem it. There's hope. And the church is meant to be uh, the one who ushers in and, and announces, there's hope. There's hope. Believe in the Lord Jesus. Like Ruth, there's hope. Place your faith, your identity in the one who will save you. Philip Yancey put it this way. Grace is the most perplexing, if you think about it. It's the most perplexing, most powerful force in the universe, and I believe the only hope for our twisted, violent planet. Grace is perplexing. Really? That person? Him? Her? Them? Do you know what they've done? It is the most perplexing thing that the God of the universe would blast wide open the doors of salvation. And it is the most powerful force turning hearts of stone into hearts of flesh that believe and serve the one true God. But it also forces those of us who are in Christ to ask questions of so what? What does this mean for me right now, what does this mean for us in this Christmas season and beyond? What does it, how do we handle this kind of powerful, perplexing grace in the midst of this season? How, what does it mean for us, Missy O'Day Church, as a gospel-shaped, a gospel-formed community of faith? D.A. Carson said something profound in his book, called Love in Hard Places. Let me give you the full quote before you get that. The church itself is not made up of natural friends. What binds us together is not a common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything else of that sort. Christians come together not because they form a natural 
collocation, but because they have all been saved by Jesus Christ and owe Him a common allegiance. In light of this common allegiance, in light of the fact that they have all been loved by Jesus Himself, they commit themselves to doing what He says. And He commands them to love one another. (laughs) In this light, I love this quote, in this light, they are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. Think about it. In Christ Jesus, well, it, it, by the world's eyes, we, we are a band of natural enemies. We should be hating each other. We should not find any kind of identity with each other because we're different. We have different convictions. We have different political views. We have different this. We have different income. We have different convictions on maybe the minutia of Scripture or even some of the big things in Scripture. We are natural enemies. We should be fighting against each other. But because of the work of Christ, we do what we are commanded. We love one another for the sake of Christ. And this is the scandal of the gospel. This is the gospel opens up doors that the world would keep closed. He, God persuades us with his irresistible grace and he changes the very condition of the human heart. He, he reorients our personal goals and purposes and aligns them with his goals and his purposes. And often, friends, it takes an entire lifetime, doesn't it? To realign our purposes and our goals with his purposes and his goals. That's not permission to get lazy. But that's, it's true. On top of that, this scandalous gospel brings together the most unlikely people all under the banner of Christ. In fact, we get a glimpse of that in Romans chapter 7. Listen to this. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. You know, there's a few differences in theology in that group right there. A few differences in uh, how they, their worldview, differences in politics. There's probably even some differences in, um, I'll let you kind of figure out where those differences are. But what are they doing? They are standing before the throne and before the Lamb who is clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, together, salvation belongs to our, Lord, our God who sits on, to the, on the throne and to the Lamb. So together in one voice, they are worshiping, they're singing, they're, they're exclaiming, they're proclaiming. This is where salvation is found. Not in our little groups, not in our ethnicity, not in our, our likenesses and our differences. It is found in Christ. That is where salvation is found. That is where hope is found. So what does this mean now for you? We looked at the for us But what about the for you? This child that the prophets foretold, that the angels sang about, that we build all of our family traditions around, which by the way, friends, is not sacred. 
But all those things, the one who lived a perfect life on our behalf, the one who came to seek and save the lost, that's you and me, the one who willingly chose to pay the penalty, this child came for us, for this broken, messed up, diverse world who needs a Savior. Friends, when you screw up, when you are in the wrong, when things look like it could go really south very quickly with your name and your reputation being smeared, we do our absolute best, right, to hide a scandal. That's how we work. It goes all the way back to our our father and our mother in the Garden of Eden. The first thing that they did was hide. And on top of that, not only do they hide, they hid their nakedness behind flimsy leaves. But God does something different for us. Remember what Laura Kipnis said about scandals? The most compelling scandals are those when some secret is revealed, best through some inadvertent means. What does God do with a scandal? He doesn't scrub it down with Ajax and bleach it out. He doesn't give us a sanitized, happily ever after kind of story that we might see on on the Hallmark Channel. Instead, what does God do? He takes out his giant highlighter and he highlights the scandal of the gospel. Look at what I've done. Look at how it's working out. And look who it's brought. Not only does he highlight these stories within the pages of Scripture, he actually engrafts those messy, ill-deserving outsiders into the very genealogy. Why? To clearly communicate that there is room for you. To clearly communicate that there's room for me. So how how does one respond? How do you respond when we hear the scandalous grace? We respond in faith that the God of the universe has actually made a way through Jesus Christ. And He's made a way so that we can be a part of His family, to be part of His people. So that we can say, Lord, where you go, I'll go. Even where your people lodge, I'll I'll be there. You will be my God. And I will be your people. Friends, don't forget this. Christ came for the outsiders. He came for those that didn't deserve a thing. And hopefully... That, and the story of Ruth, reshapes who you share this good news with. The, in your eyes, the ill-deserving. Those who don't fit in your box. Those that you think that are without hope. Those who you think would say, are you serious? And you're going, yeah, I am. He's also come not only for them, he's come for you. And if he's calling this morning, we're we're urged, and I want to urge you to respond quickly, humbly. Lord, like Ruth, 
I'm un- unworthy of your grace. But today, by faith, I receive your scandalous grace. And thank you. Thank you for forgiving me and including me and grafting me and making me one of your people. Lord, help me today to live faithfully in light of this undeserved grace, the mercy that you've given to me that I don't deserve. Friends, this is the good news of Christmas. Undeserved, scandalous grace. The good news is not found underneath a tree. It's not found in singing Christmas songs, caroling. It's not found in your family reunions around a dinner table. That's not the hope of Christmas. Those are called byproducts. That God has done something and he sends you out. May we be a kind of people that focuses on the scandalous grace and shares it liberally with all who need to hear it. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this, um, this crazy, scandalous grace. We thank you that you are a God who includes outsiders, those who would seem to be banned from the, this covenant community. But Lord, through your grace and your mercy, you include. You spread over your umbrella of grace over us, and you bring us in. Lord, I pray that as a community of faith, Lord, that we, we begin to really grapple with the implications of what could be considered a dangerous story of grace. Lord, I pray that as we grapple with this amazing story of grace, Lord, that it will so permeate our words, our thoughts, our actions. May we be seen more and more and more by a watching world and by even our own community of faith as an inclusive family that reaches out to people with the gospel of grace that draws people to an ever-deepening relationship with you, God. May we be known as a, a patient community waiting and working on this process called sanctification of becoming more and more holy more like Jesus Christ so Lord would you bless these words this morning may they take root in our hearts in our lives and Lord would we see fruit in the coming weeks, months years and decades we embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.